Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. So welcome back, uh, Jerome. This is the second episode on uh, German wine and what's been changing in the last 20 years. And we, in the first episode, we focused mostly on Riesling and the trend for dry Riesling, but also the high quality of sweet Riesling and focus on single vineyard wines as well. But this episode, we're going to look at other varieties and other styles of wine. And let's start with Zet. So that's the German sparkling wine. I believe I'm correct in saying that the Germans drink more sparkling wine than any other country in the world. And a lot of it is probably inexpensive Zet. But there is some good quality Zet out there, isn't there? What can, what's, be, yeah. what's been changing recently? Yeah, yeah. Matthew, you're totally right about uh, consumption of, of Zekt in Germany. I mean, we, we consume one quarter of the world's production uh, of sparkling wines. We might not be world leaders in football anymore, <laughs> <laughs> probably not cars, but in gobbling up sparkling wines, certainly we are. The truth is, indeed, um, Zekt the Zects that we consume, or the sorry, the, the sparkling wines that we consume, um, about eighty percent, maybe eighty-five percent, still is a very inexpensive produced sparklers. Um, a lot of prosecco, a lot of cava, a lot of our own Zects, very often made with grapes that are just harvested somewhere, put into big blenders, but. And I think that's that's the important thing. Um, we see a real revival here. I don't have the exact figures, but uh, high-end Zekt is probably one of the most successful wine categories in Germany um, over the last 10 years. It's probably one of the categories that is still growing, while beer, white wine, red wine, and so on, they are all declining in terms of consumption. But high-end Zekts, definitely, they, they, they do well. So what is a high-end Zekt? We have this category called Winzer Zekt, which literally translates as the winemaker's sparkling wine. So it is the, the Zekt that has been made by a winemaker, and typically um, that will be made uh, in method uh, traditionnel, with the second fermentation in the bottle. So this, this has been working really, really well. The high-end Zekts come from many, many different places uh, in Germany. Um, you have them actually at the Moselle, you have them in Rheingau, you have them uh, in, uh, all, all across actually German vineyards. The best known names, uh, for instance, Raumland, a Zekt maker in Rheinhessen, who, like many others, has really looked into how sparkling wines are made in Champagne. They really studied that a lot. They came back, formed their own styles, and now you find, of course, for instance, Riesling as the Zekt category. And uh, yeah, I, generally spoken, I think this is this is a category that is has been hugely successful. The interesting thing here is so that quality-wise, price quality-wise, you're still on a on a rather inexpensive level. Um, a very good um, Zekt here sells already at 15 euro a bottle. But the prices are approaching very much very quickly now, um, the champagne prices. To add to that, maybe a thing that kind of helped 
sparkling winemakers a lot was when in, I think it was about 10 years ago, um, the estate von Buhl in Pfalz managed to hire the um, cellar master of the Bollinger Champagne House, Matthew Kaufmann, uh, who was then in charge of making sparkling wines at von Buhl. And that kind of caused huge ripple effects also in, into the yeah, sparkling winemaking scene, if you want so. Into, so people really saw it's, it's worth to spend time here to make some really good sects. Yeah, it's, I think I find it very interesting category because I, I do feel that the quality has improved a lot in recent years. And here in California, we are getting more high quality sect into the market, which is really interesting to try and that people are receptive towards it as well, because it's not a well-known category um, outside of Germany. Um, it is not, and it, it, and it certainly, uh, and it certainly has strong competition, right? I mean, it's uh, champagne is still, even in Germany, you know, um, I think many people consider Zekt as second after champagne. So, indeed, that's uh, it is not easy. I, I don't think. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy you you mentioned actually that there is Zekt being sold in California. I think it's. Uh, Bart, um, Zeku Bart from um, Rheingau does, does a good job in exporting, for instance, their, their sparkling wines. Maybe one more thing to add to, to this is that uh, the VDP also added actually Zekt to its categorization. Mm-hmm. So there is actually single vineyard Zekts now also in the market out there, so, which is quite remarkable. Yeah, that, that's a huge change. Um... Yes, yeah, so recently I've had a Von Winnings uh, Zekt, which is really good, and Maximum Grunhaus as well. Um, just really, obviously got that really high acid that you would want with a sparkling wine, but much more aromatic and rounder than you would get from Champagne. So it is a different, distinctive style. Right. But you mentioned um, that Zekt's always going to be seen as inferior to Champagne. I think that's the problem that any sparkling wine region around the world is going to have. Same with England as well. It's, like, it's not Champagne. It's really good, but it's not Champagne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got family in Champagne, and uh, I think the Champenois see it the same way. They, yeah. <laughs> they Champagne nothing else, in yeah. fact. <laughs> uh, it was actually just a, maybe a little anecdote here. Um, I, I had the pleasure to show around uh, winemakers from Champagne in Germany. And it's, it's interesting how much introverts sometimes uh, winemakers can be, um, because we tried actually to show them all the nuances of Riesling. And it was hard to win people over actually to kind of enjoy this. And um, I think vice versa, it's probably also sometimes quite difficult <laughs> for others to accept the nuances of, of, of champagnes. But I, I think that, um, that generally spoken, I think um, champagne is indeed still seen as the yeah, the leader in sparkling wines. Yeah, I think if you can make a wine that you can compare to champagne, then you've done a very good job because it is the, the standard that that is set for sparkling wine. But it's really exciting that Zekt is getting better and better and it's not just the cheap, inexpensive stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Really, there's, there's, there's a lot of, of, of good stuff out there. And um, yeah, even in Germany, some people, people are surprised sometimes when you serve them actually uh, a Zekt and um, to which extent it actually it is it, it has become um, yeah a, a drink of quality. 
And what about rose eggs? That's another category which has definitely changed internationally. Even 10 years ago, most rose was pretty cheap and maybe a yeah. little bit sweet, but now there's really good rose being produced and it's very popular yeah. with consumers. So what's the scene in Germany? I think it's, it's, it's really a worldwide trend. Huh? I think it started actually in a sparkling wine area, um, the rosé, champagne, rosé acts. But um, now you see it actually all over the place. Um, and one needs to keep in mind that uh, for a very long time, uh, rosé in Germany was was a cheap wine. Was was also in was in Germany was seen as a cheap wine, um, an inexpensive wine. Sometimes even they kind of what do you call this uh, the byproduct of red wine making. Mm-hmm. So you wanted to concentrate your wine a little bit, you would actually mash the grapes, take off some of the juice, and macerate the rest in, in the remaining juice. So the juice that you took off, that would be your rosé. <laughs> you would ferment it and sell it, actually. And that was yeah, the cheapest uh, style you could get. And sometimes was sweetened up a little bit and then sold. But if you fo- fast forward to now, the interesting thing is almost any winemaker has now a proper rosé. And to me, it's surprising, but um, you see that in Moselle, you see that in Rheingau, famous winemakers, take uh, Zilbach Oster, for instance, um, has a nice rosé. J.B. Becker in Rheingau comes up with a nice rosé. And it's, 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 I think people are really following maybe a trend that has been set actually by Provence, by setting, by creating actually good quality wines and in Germany, do consumers just drink German rosé or do they drink international rosé? I think right now there's quite a focus actually on German rosé. You have, I think, to keep in mind that rosé was not even considered a proper quality wine. So why import rosé? You would have, you know, you would bring back uh, five liters of rosé from your holidays in south of France. <laughs> and that's about it. So... You know, imported rosé was is actually not um, not a big thing. If you wanted rosé, you would get it actually from your uh, winemaker around the corner. So I think Miraval and all these rosés that are now actually produced in in in, uh, in Provence, they they are being imported, but certainly they they meet quite some competition now from within Germany. And which grape varieties are generally used for rosé? I think Pinot Noir is actually the the uh, the grape of of choice for higher end rosé. Blanc de Noir, um, that's that's quite often the, the first the lighter style, but then proper proper rosés also. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Pinot Noir and the red wine made from Pinot Noir. Yeah. Uh, so that's definitely been um, another trend in Germany for red wine and really high quality uh, Pinot Noir. So, where is the best Pinot Noir in Germany grown? I refuse to answer this question. <laughs> um, you know, there is great Pinot Noirs from so many areas. If you if you if you look at traditions, then certainly R, the R River, a tributary to the Rhine, north of Moser, is one, the most northern part, and the most southern part is in uh, the area of Baden. Both produce fantastic uh, Pinot Noirs. But then there's a middle in between that has fantastic Pinot Noirs. So if you go to Pfalz or Rheinhessen, we'll get some very nice Pinot Noirs. 
And interestingly, very interestingly, actually Moselle picks up the game again. So you have also high-end winemakers uh, making Pinot Noirs there. So where's the best Pinot Noir coming from? I leave that to your palate <laughs> to decide. Um, the most expensive ones come probably from Baden, from yeah, from the R. But again, you know, there's also exceptions. Some real freaks, really, um, who bought a single vineyard in in Moselle and made it a Pinot Noir vineyard, and they sell the first bottles at sixty euro a bottle. So, by German standards, outrageous. Mm-hmm. Outrageous, yeah. So very good stuff, yeah. To to add one more, actually, from uh, a famous winemaker, Keller in Hessen, it's a big Pinot fan, makes some excellent Pinot Noirs. Yeah, in fact, it's 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 all over the place. Um, I don't think I have heard of uh, a lot of Pinots coming from Franconia, um, for instance. Yeah, it's interesting that it's grown in so many different regions. Can could you categorize German Pinot Noir? At- in general, or will you just say every region is different? No, I think every region is different. I and uh, honestly, I, I'm I'm not um, a wine critic. I wouldn't be able to really now say, okay, this uh, certain regions have that characteristic for for certain Pinot. Uh, I mean, if you go the further south you go, the more sunlight and warmth you have, so you will certainly get a bit of rounder wines. Um, but even then. Some of the vineyards in in Moselle um, or are they heat up that much um, during with sunshine? Well, that's the joy of Pinot Noir. It, it, it express, expresses where it comes from. Um, but why have so many producers turned to Pinot Noir? What what is the appeal? Is it domestic demand, or is it just a great great variety that works so well? I think it's this second variety that can really stand out for Germany, um, besides Riesling. Now, if you if you you want to come up with a USP, a unique selling proposition for Germany. You would come, of course, you come up with reasoning first, but then probably it is Pinot Noir because these wines are great and they are comparatively inexpensive when they are compared to uh, wines from uh, Burgundy. And um, I think the second answer to this question is um, there is also a little bit of climate change that has played into the cards. So. Um, you can really grow Pinot in many more places nowadays. And probably also one last thing is that push towards quality. So if you are, if you combine all of that, um, the idea of a proper market, you can really sell good Pinots as a German wine. Um, you have the ability with climate. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's working out. Yeah, so part of that general trend towards higher quality wine. Pinot Noir is also called Spätburgunder. What about the other Pinot grapes? So Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, or Grauburgunder, Weissburgunder. I've had some very good examples here in California. Maybe we just get the good stuff here. But I think there can be some really interesting wine made from those varieties. No, I'm not too familiar with Pinot Blanc, but there is Grauburgunder, for instance, especially in wine Hessen, is a wine that is used a lot for, um, of course, uh, single bottlings, uh, even single vineyard wines. And it comes across a bit more, it has just more body, more fruit than your average Pinot, Pinot Gris um, from uh, northern Italy. So it's been, yeah, it's been fairly successful. And you have a couple of winemakers who really experiment with, um, for instance, longer maceration, um, 
giving it a, a bit of a rosy orange mm-hmm. uh, color thing. Um, so there's actually, um, it's working out well, um, but I wouldn't say this is something that is a big thing in Germany. It's it's well consumed over here, especially by people who kind of like that or enjoy the fact that Pinocchio uh, is a bit less acidic. Um, so it's it's also like if you cannot stand like the acidity of Riesling, of Pinot Gris can be can be a very nice choice. Yeah. Yeah, I find those varieties interesting just because it's a different side to Germany from Riesling, and I think it allows us to educate consumers about Germany and just say it's not this one-dimensional style of wine, it's not just Riesling. And going back to our previous conversation, it's not just sweet Riesling, it's dry Riesling as well. And then we also have these other great varieties which produce different styles of wine, and in talking about the different regions as well. But that does bring us back to kind of the pre-quality days with Müller-Thurgau. And is it possible to make good wine from Müller-Thurgau? I haven't tasted one yet. (laughs) I think it's possible. Of course it's possible. Um, and I think um, there is one makers who put their energy into it. Um, within, my, within my wine career yet, I have not tasted a Miller Fergal that I really enjoyed. I mean, it's, it's the second biggest crop, right, mm-hmm. in terms of in, in wine speak. It's, it's actually just second after Riesling. It's a varietal that has been cloned for... Know, its ability to produce large amount of of juice, and it's the the clone. The, it's it's sorry, it's the grape that goes into uh, all these blended wines that end up in the lower shelves of uh, supermarkets and discounters. So, in terms of base material, there is it's not it's not really brilliant, is it? Um, and just maybe to segue into another grape varietal that is similar to that, and you might ask about this, is it's Dornfelder. Dornfelder is this, it's actually corresponding to Müller-Thurgau, so it's the second grape after uh, Spätburgunder, after Pinot Noir, so huge quantities too, but also grape varietal that has been like pushed into the vineyard for its, not for its for its properties, not for its high-end quality. So it's also producing a lot of juice, heavy colors, big fruit. It's used to be blended. So two varietals um, that, uh, if you take good care of them, probably can make some good wines. Um, I think for Dornfelder, I had, I had one or two that I thought were quite okay, but they are not prone for greatness, I guess. It's interesting you put it that way because I have had good Muller Thurgau, but not from Germany. So from the Alto Adige in northern Italy, and there's some, mm-hmm. actually some good Muller Thurgau produced, and that's probably because there wasn't the trend for mass production, high yield, low quality yeah. wine, whereas in Germany that was the trend. So that's what you're not yeah. working with material as good as kind of lower, uh, high, um, lower yield that you might do in Alto Adige. Maybe to, to kind of you know, push this thought a bit further on. Um, another varietal that is a bit lesser known but produces actually some interesting wines is uh, Scheurebe. In, I think in Austria it's called uh, Clone 88. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and Scheurebe, for instance, was put into place uh, into the market by Dr. Georg Scheu about 100 years ago. Um, it was, it was a clone that was actually also made in a period 
where people were looking for grapes that would be consistent, frost resistant, produce large amounts. Um, in a time, I mean, if you go back 100 years, so basically um, 1950, 1920, people were not harvesting good crops every year. They would harvest a good crop maybe every five years. Germany was a super cold climate. So varietals really like our newer clones, like Scheurebe, for instance, and later on Zurgau, and a bit later on Dornfelder, they were produced actually, or they were kind of created for their properties really to be, to consistently deliver. Now, um, Scheurebe, for instance, yeah, celebrated its 100th anniversary in 2016, and yeah, quite a number of winemakers picked this one up and produce some really, really nice Scheurebes. Herr Steppel and Rheinhessen, Wittmann, um, these guys are actually, they picked up the grapes and made some very good ones. So, yeah, it's possible to make interesting wines from more functional varietals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I have actually tasted some good Scheurebe. You might not know this, but there is actually Scheurebe planted in Napa Valley. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because um, I used to work at Joseph Phelps, which is more known for Insignia and their Cabernets, but they have a plot of Scheurebe because their first winemaker was German. And that was the yeah. 1970s when a grape variety like that was much more commonly planted. So they uh, planted it and, yeah. they, and they still have it. And they make what they call an ice wine out of it. They actually just freeze the grapes. But, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interestingly, a Scheurebe can take, actually, you can make it sweet, you can make yeah. it bright. It has actually quite some... Uh, properties that are rather similar to, to Riesling in terms of sweetness levels. Um, but in terms of, I, I like to, I, I really like to um, give people a taste of Scheurebe because people who like um, Sauvignon Blanc, they tend to like Scheurebe as well. They have very similar taste profiles. And an another variety which is planted in California, I think there's just one vineyard, is Kerner. And it's actually um, really good because it really keeps its acidity in the <clears throat> in the warm climate of California. And then I've had Kerner from Alto Adige as well and liked it, but I've never had one from Germany. Is there much planted there? Me neither, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I know actually there is, uh, I think Kerner is something of, um, you will find it in the south of Germany, Markreiferland um, and so on. But it's never, it's never been a varietal that I should taste it, of course, but I haven't, haven't so <laughs> sorry, I have to pass on this yeah. one. Um, but I think one one to mention before uh, is is certainly um, Silvana. Yeah, it's a varietal that seems to make a comeback. I hear mm -hmm. um, more often from it right now, and it's uh, it's the, it's well, it's basically the USP uh, of Franconia. But it used to be planted a lot, actually, in my home region, in Rheinhessen. It's an interesting grape because um, people licken it to, to Riesling, really, uh, in the sense that it can pick up the character of the terroir of the soil. And uh, I'm, I'm starting to make my way into it. Franconia is a bit off my usual roots, but I, I like it. That it has actually it has some freshness to it, but it's not that acidic. So it has actually a bit, it's a bit softer. And it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting um, varietal. And I, I hear quite a number of critics mentioning Silvana more often these days. 
it's not necessarily a bridle that um, people mention when they come and visit. No, uh, I don't think many people know a lot of, about Silvana when they come from outside of Germany. I think it's underappreciated, and I remember there is actually some planted here in uh, California. Some of the first plantings in California in the 1850s and 60s were by German immigrants. So they planted Riesling and Silvana. So there's a winery not far from here that replanted Silvana when they bought the property as kind of a homage to the original German owners. So um, I think that's one thing that gets overlooked here in California, that the German influence on the early days of California winemaking. Oh, yeah. My problem with Silvana is the Boxbeutel. If you're in a wine shop, is that how, how do you store it? How do you... <laughs> It just won't fit on any shelf. You know what? And the interesting thing about that box bottle is, uh, yes, it is characteristic. But this, so basically, if if you see a box bottle, you know it's a Silvana. Um, but it's such a pest of a bottle, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it will not fill. Uh, you cannot stack it. You cannot put it in a uh, properly in a fr- uh, in a fridge. Um, it doesn't really work. And I'm surprised how stubbornly I actually. People stick to to the box bottle um, because I, I think Silvana would sell. Well, it does. They they put Silvana into normal flute mm-hmm. shaped, recent shaped bottles. Um, but I think it would make things much easier, much easier. Yeah, I agree. Do you, and is that the origin of that bottle? Just because the wine was for early drinking, so you wouldn't worry about storing it. You just buy it and drink it. Is that the origin or? Is there a reason for it? Yeah, you know, I've, I've been trying to find an answer to this, um, and the, the answer I got was actually, you know, when you when you go on a picnic, you get drunk and you're on a slope, the bottle will not run away. Uh, run, roll away. <laughs> <laughs> that's an advantage. I'll have to and try that. <laughs> and that's it. Uh, you know, it's. Um, I don't think that there is really a real reason behind. The shape of that bottle—it is. Um, there's no no answer to this. Right. Well, as you say, it is distinctive. As soon as you see that bottle, you know what it is. It is. It is very distinctive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one last variety is Trollinger. Um, I saw someone tweet yesterday that they had an absolutely fantastic Trollinger, and they wondered why more producers don't work with it because they enjoyed it so much. I have had again going back to Alto Adige. I've had Schiava or Venatch, as it's also called there, which has been really good, really light bodied. It kind of fits into international trends for lighter-bodied, paler-coloured reds. Yeah. How um, many producers working with it in Germany? Uh, it's a great varietal of the south of the area of Württemberg, you know, Stuttgart in south, basically, um, the Mercedes region. Um, and I think it's a, it's a great varietal that just is is a princess in to waiting to be kissed awake. Really, um, my first encounters with uh, Trollinger was actually with my father-in-law <laughs> who actually put this on the table to show me that they have proper wines down there <laughs> um, and that I was that I was just so it's not not liking um, his Trollinger um, because in fact Trollinger is also one of those varietals that yeah are made by locals for the local taste you know you grew up with Trollinger you like it and you drink it um, so for a very long time, people did not need to sell it outside of the area of Württemberg. Don't think that they, people put a lot of attention to it. Um, but the truth is, indeed, I, I just uh, I had one myself just recently. And I was just surprised how hmm. 
how nice this is. Um, it's a light wine. You enjoy it a little bit um, chilled. I mean, like like good burgundy or gamay or so. It can it, it makes for a very nice, um, pleasant summer experience. Really, Schneidmann, Dautel, uh, they they make some very good products. Yeah. To try some, I I don't think I've seen any here on the California market, but I think it sounds like it has the potential to produce pretty interesting wine. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's um, again one of these varietals where people will think twice whether they try to export it really because there's so much explanation to do around it that it's probably not that easy to to send it to the United right. States. So that's been really interesting. I think we've given a really good overview of all these different styles of wine uh, being made in Germany. That it's not just Riesling, although the Riesling is fantastic, but you can have great sparkling wine, rosé, and then these all these other different varieties as well. And that the red wines can be made in different styles too. And I feel that these are trends that are going to continue, that um, producers are going to work with these different varieties. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. If you want one more to put on your watch list, it's Lemberger. Mm-hmm. Um, Lemberger, the corresponding wine to uh, Blaufränkisch. And the Austrians have done a very good job at making Blaufränkisch a, a very uh, good um, red wine. Um, and I think uh, quite a number of winemakers also from the south, actually, um, Baden and uh, Württemberg, they um, look into Blaufränkisch for, uh, sorry, Lemberger, same same as a varietal with potential. That makes sense. Um, I've always wondered why it wasn't planted more in Germany. Blaufränkisches can make exceptional wine. People are discussing, people really are discussing, should they call it Blaufränkisch? It's it's, the same actually with um, questions like whether you call your wine um, uh, a Spätburgunder or whether you call it uh, Pinot Noir. It depends probably also, you know, which markets you want to reach. Yeah, it's funny because when um, I first went to Washington State and I learned about the history of the state, they they told me that Lemberger was the great variety that they initially focused on in the 1970s because it worked really well there. And I was like, what the hell is Lemberger? I've never heard of it. And then I discovered it was Blaufränkisch and I was like, oh, that makes complete sense. Yeah. So it's all in the name and recognition. And also New York State, I think, has potential for good uh, Blaufränkisch. But I think it's, okay. yeah, it's a great variety which I think people are becoming more aware of. Uh, because of Austria, and I think it would make more sense to call it Blaufränkisch. So, great overview. Um, in the next episode, we're going to look at biodynamics and organic winemaking. So, thank you again, Jerome. Thank you.